Guess what? I'm moving country again. I don't know. Maybe a year. Maybe more. Where's home? Home's everywhere. I'm an expat. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Meet the Expats. Today I meet with Anahi. And she is an expat based in San Miguel, Mexico, and has seen the extreme poverty of the region, is now involved in an NGO that she has created. So we're going to go through these different topics of change of culture, as always, but also volunteering and NGOs. Hello, Anahi. How are you? Hello. I'm great. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for reaching out. Um, didn't mention it in the intro, but you also have a book coming out very shortly. So we will be touching uh, touching on that. Uh, excited to hear more about it. Thank you. So I'll let you introduce yourself briefly to, to our audience. Sure. Well, I'm an American woman, and I am so lucky to live in beautiful San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. I've also previously lived in Hirakata, Japan, Suva, Fiji, Shanghai, China, and Oxford, wow. England, as well as a number of uh, American cities. I used to work for the State Department, what most countries call the foreign ministry, which explains some of those moves. <laughs> But now I'm a writer and an activist, and I'm raising two sons here in San Miguel de Allende. Uh, for a number of years, I was the vice president of Casita Linda, which builds, builds homes for families living in extreme poverty. And then more recently, I co-founded Mano Amiga, which is an NGO that provides interest-free microloans, training, and mentoring for women to help them launch or expand their own small businesses. I also write for Mexico News Daily and for San Miguel Life, which is an expat lifestyle blog, and okay. my first novel... The Broken Hummingbird is about to be published. Wow. So lots to unpack there. I mean, you've been all over the world, definitely. Which is quite, quite an impressive um, his history there. And you seem to be involved in so many different things. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. A lot of jobs in, <laughs> at the same time. It's true. Um, okay, so maybe let's go back a little bit and you touched slightly on the fact that some of the moves were in involved with your were job related. How yeah. did the first moves come up and what was the motivation behind them? Sure. Well, the very first move abroad was to Oxford, England. I was just okay. doing a semester abroad during my undergraduate years um, at, at university. And that was just a few months, but I absolutely loved it. And I got a taste for exploring other cultures and I wanted to keep going from there. So right after um, university, I moved to Hirakata, Japan to teach right. English. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my life. So why not um, spend a little time exploring and teaching English? After that, with some of the teachers that I'd been working with, We traveled all over Asia, one of those epic backpacking trips, <laughs> China, Nepal, Thailand, Vietnam, and just absolutely loved it. So then I knew I really wanted a life abroad. And I applied to the State Department and I worked okay. in the Human Rights and Democracy Bureau of the State Department later after grad school right. and um, focused on China and other countries in East Asia. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 
So that was the Asian side and Oxford. Mm -hmm. What brought you to San Miguel then? Uh, Well, before (laughs) graduate school, uh, my husband and I took six months and we traveled all over Mexico and Central America. And on that trip, we, we visited San Miguel for the first time, and we absolutely fell in love with it. <laughs> but we had to get back to real life. We had jobs in grad school waiting for us. So we decided, like a lot of people do, that someday when we were old, we'd retire in San Miguel. Oh, but wow. then fast forward about a decade to 2012, and we have two babies at this point. And I don't want to work for the State Department anymore as much as I loved it. It's too much travel with two little kids. So I wasn't working. And my husband was working for IBM. And they were sort of ahead of the curve on remote work. And they offered him the opportunity to work from home. So then we just looked at each other and said, what are we waiting for? We (laughs) don't have to wait until retirement to go to San Miguel. Let's do it now. Let's try it. So we decided we'd do a one-year sabbatical, and we'd come and check out living in San Miguel with kids. And of course, like a month into it, we're like, we're never leaving. We're just, we're going to do this. (laughs) So So. (laughs) that was 11 years ago, and we haven't left. We've been here raising the kids and and living in San Miguel ever since. We love it. Amazing. And so what resonated so much and seduced you with San Miguel? Well... Everybody tends to fall in love on their first visit. It's the whole um, historic center of town is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, All of this, you know, four and 500 year old Spanish colonial architecture painted in these vibrant colors of red and orange and yellow. And then right in the middle, there's this church. Um, Everyone says it looks like something out of a fairy tale because it's Mm -hmm. made from the local Cantera marble, which is a soft shade of pink. So there's this huge pink church in the middle and it's just a beautiful town. Plus, um, for a lot of reasons, and I can go into San Miguel's history later if you want, but for a lot of reasons, for several generations now, it has attracted a lot of artists and writers Mm. and creative types So there's an incredible community here, both international and Mexican, um, that are very creative. So it's very welcoming. Yeah. um, And it's just an incredible place to live and be a writer or be an artist or, you know, try to let your creative juices flow in some way. It's perfect for that. And so do you feel like this environment helped you settle on writing a book, becoming more of a journalist and all that? bubbled out? Had you thought about it before moving? I'd always had the dream of someday writing a book, but I'd honestly never had the time. I'd had a full-time job. I had little kids and it probably wouldn't have happened if I weren't here. It was the environment. People around me were doing it. So it suddenly seemed more attainable, not like this far off dream, but something I could really do. And because living here, I could afford not to have a paying job, I suddenly had more time to do it. So I got deeply involved in nonprofit work, but also started writing. And both of those things are very important to me. Okay. How did you start that shift? So you took the sabbatical, obviously, to move there. And how did you sort of shift your lifestyle from being used to, okay, being 
in a company working yes. having your kids to some be that sabbatical and shifting into those two areas specifically the ngo let's start with mm-hmm. that one mm-hmm. well when we got here we were looking to you know build connections in the community to put down roots and in one sense we got incredibly lucky because the international school here was opening exactly as we arrived So we walked into this community of parents, both Mexican and international, who are all fired up to build this great school for their kids. So doing a lot of fundraisers together, doing a lot of school planning meetings together was definitely a bonding experience. So we were just immediately part of this wonderful community of young families. And then once the school was sort of up and running and rolling and I was spending less time on that, I decided to get more involved in um, nonprofit work. And the first thing that appealed to me was Casita Linda. And Casita Linda is this incredible um, NGO. It was started 20 years ago by a Mexican woman and an American man. So it's been bicultural the whole time. (laughs) And um, we build about 10 houses a year. Um, I remember just a few years ago, we were celebrating the 100th house, and now we're about to celebrate the 150th house that wow. we've built. Um, each house costs about 15000 US dollars, and we build a three-bedroom house with that. It's pretty amazing. Um, so there's a separate bedroom for the parents, the female children, and the male children. And each house has a very simple kitchen, a very simple bathroom. Um, But just that, having an indoor bathroom and an indoor functioning kitchen changes lives. Um, One of the requirements to receive a house is that the families have to keep their kids in school, um, which a lot of them wanted to anyway, but couldn't afford to. And now this changes their life enough that they can afford to keep their kids in school. And that really breaks the cycle of poverty. So I can't say enough good things about this organization. (laughs) And full disclosure, I was the vice president for several years, and I'm still on the board and just love it. And not only do we build these homes, but we do a series of workshops in the communities where we work. These are very underserved, um, usually rural communities around the edge of the incredible city. San Miguel is so fascinating in the sense that the center is this incredible world-class city with, you know, five-star hotels and restaurants. And it's just amazing. It's always winning like number one small city in the world and all these travel magazine contests. It's super popular and it's an incredible city, but just outside there is still this poverty. So getting involved in that and working with that was important to me. And this, this organization makes a huge impact. Yeah. And how is it, I mean, I, I can imagine it brings a lot also to your children just in terms of transmitting values, the value of money yes. and how the world really is, I feel, Absolutely. is a bit of that. I think that's one of the best things about raising kids here. Um, they are now fully bilingual, fully bicultural. Yeah. And because I've been involved in this particular organization, so have they over the years. Mm-hmm. I have this very cute picture of the two of them working at a lemonade stand when they were very little. <laughs> and they've been involved throughout their time. 
um, just this summer, they were counselors at a summer camp for Casita Linda kids. Wow. And so they're very comfortable working with these you right. know, children who are coming from a really difficult background. And my kids being exposed to that and being comfortable engaging with that and making a difference and yes, appreciating the value of money is, is important to me. It, it, it must be very shocking indeed to see this contrast and I, I completely yes. understand. So this way of like giving back and helping and yes. um, yeah, it's bringing, trying to bring the two worlds to sort of a level up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is hard to do, but we make our little yeah. effort to move it along. Every, every step counts. <laughs> <laughs> and so what about this second NGO now that you've uh, you've built? Yes, um, I would love to talk about Mono Amiga. So um, several of us who are very involved with Casita Linda and a couple others who are involved with other amazing nonprofits here in San Miguel saw that there was one sort of need that hadn't been filled. And that is even after these families received a home, it was still very hard for the women to run successful businesses. They lack access to affordable credit. Mm-hmm. Everyone does, but in particular, the women. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the women here are working in the informal economy and they can't access a regular, reasonable bank loan. So if they want money to invest in a business, the only option is to go to what we call in America um, payday lenders, which charge just extortionate interest rates. So you get caught right. in this sort of vicious cycle of debt. So it's a terrible option. Um, but there's, you know, there was no other option for them. So we decided to start um, a micro lending organization. And we focus on women um, because women are the most um, neglected by the, yeah, yeah, most vulnerable and most neglected by the banking system. And also because if you look at micro lending programs around the world, women are an awesome investment. They have really high repayment rates and they reinvest their profits in their business and also in the welfare of their family. So it makes this incredible impact. Um, We've done 75 microloans so far. We started in 2018, and we were just going strong when the pandemic hit. hit. And then we had to sort of take a pause. We did a moratorium on loan repayments. And um, we actually were doing um, support to the women to just help them survive the pandemic. And then we sort of relaunched at the end. And... um, we, we got going really strongly again after the pandemic. And so now we're primed and ready to grow. And that 75 will keep going up more rapidly, I think, now. Um, one second. Um, we've got such a wide range. Basically, if a woman comes with a viable business plan, we'll support almost anything. So we have artisans making traditional crafts. We have cooks making traditional foods. But we also have a muffler mechanic. It's the only female-owned muffler shop in wow. San Miguel. That's very cool. We have um, an electrician, um, people with florist shops, people um, who are beauticians. They do hair and makeup and nails. Yeah. Um, we have a psychologist. We have a whole range of, of different businesses that these women want to either launch or grow using the, mm. you know, an investment from Mono Amiga. And then not only is it the interest-free microloan, 
but it's also that they're entering a sisterhood of other businesswomen and they meet, they have trainings, they have mentoring, and they support each other. And one thing that we're really proud of is that a lot of times, even when the women have paid back their loans and have no obligation to keep mm-hmm. coming to the trainings, they keep coming they in a way. Yes, because yeah, there's this sort of community that's forming also. Exactly. Exactly. It and sounds it, like you're almost a like business incubator on top. It is. <laughs> the micro level. Yes. Yeah. Very tiny and vulnerable businesses. We've seen a few good success stories. We have this one woman who um, prepares mole, which is a very traditional Mexican sauce. It can have 30 or 40 ingredients. It's this incredibly complicated and delicious, rich type of Mexican sauce. And she has her grandmother's recipes, so it's very special to her. But she's made a few little changes and made them special. And she is selling in the organic market here to tourists and to um, high-end restaurants and doing really well. So we're super proud of her. Yeah. Nice. Beautiful story. (laughs) Very inspiring. (laughs) If you're ever in San Miguel, come to the organic market and look for Lali. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. (laughs) Mexico is on my list. So one day, one day, I will get there. (laughs) I hope you do. All right. Well, let's move on then to your second hobby uh, job, uh, which is writing. And so this upcoming book, The Broken Hummingbird, can you tell us a little bit about it? I would love to. Well, um, The Broken Hummingbird captures the slow horror of a disintegrating marriage and the redeeming pleasures of falling in love with a new life. It's about an American couple in the middle of a marital crisis who moved to their favorite city abroad, San Miguel de Allende, the misguided hope that doing that will fix their family. The wife, Jane, is the main character. She has always been a successful, driven person, but now she has to wrestle with the horrible fear that she's failing at everything. And I think so many people face these awful choices in our midlife years, as half of all marriages in the U.S. anyway, end in divorce. Sometimes our partners turn out not to be who we thought they were. Sometimes we get stuck in unhealthy patterns and unhealthy situations. And I hope readers will find inspiration in a story of a woman reclaiming her agency and finding new ways to thrive for her children and for herself. And there's also an important secondary storyline. In San Miguel, out of desire for distraction from her own problems, as well as a sincere urge to help and to assuage her expat white privilege guilt, Jane joins an NGO that builds houses for families living in extreme poverty, which might sound familiar. (laughs) She gets, while she's doing that, she gets sort of overly wrapped up in a particular family's life. And then she quickly comes to suspect that her bumbling efforts may be causing more harm than good. So the book is also about looking at our efforts to help others and being clear-eyed enough to acknowledge that some of these efforts can backfire. But it's not all dark, I promise. Uh Um, Despite the difficult themes of the book, a lot of it is very joyful. Despite all these problems, Jane's always trying to put on a happy face for her young children. And it's often not hard to do because San Miguel de Allende is such a fascinating and special place. So part of, the, of writing this book for me was indulging in a chance to celebrate the vibrant beauty of San Miguel, the city's incredibly rich cultural life, and the everyday passion and joy of life here. And I think 
in an era when Mexican and Central American immigration to the U.S. is constantly in the news and often viewed in the ugliest possible light, it's interesting to look at the motivations and the impact of Americans who've chosen to move in the other direction, yeah. sort of as you do all the time on your show, mm-hmm. looking at the impact of yeah. why happening. did you move is <laughs> always the first question. Um, and so in your, in, in your book, like right at the beginning, you say she follows her, her husband and they're trying to save their marriage by going yeah. to this new, new place. So, it sounds like the motivation is maybe misplaced in the reason of mm-hmm. like full, fully, fully moving. And what I've often heard from uh, different experts and what I've probably done also is like, you're moving to a new place often because you're running away from something and that's the wrong reason because the problem is actually going to stick with you. <laughs> exactly. Wherever you go, there you are, right? And you bring your baggage yeah. with you. Exactly. So, and, and I've seen that happen a number of times here. People think if you live in this beautiful place, mm, life is automatically wrong, beautiful, you know? right? And no, you still have to deal with your problems, whatever they are. Yeah. And sometimes... Sometimes you can exacerbate them by making mm. this leap and you really have to, to face them wherever you are. Yeah. Sometimes they might yeah, be dimmed a little bit for mm-hmm. a little while, but mm-hmm. I feel like they will, mm-hmm. they will creep back up and explode exactly. at some point. So <laughs> You can be distracted by the shiny new things for a while. Yeah. But eventually... You have that sort of honeymoon phase yes. when you arrive of discovering. But as soon yeah. as that's gone, I think not only do you face the old problems you had but you face also the new fact that you're in this new environment and not completely blended in and have a bit of either this FOMO from back home or you're in that in-between space of am I in the right place yes and that can be quite an existential crisis of its own. You know, have I made a mistake or what am I doing here? <laughs> but in this case, even though they were moving for the wrong reasons, even though, you know, the move wasn't going to magically fix their marriage, it turned out to be a great decision for her. She right. rediscovers herself. She rediscovers what makes her happy. She makes incredible friends here. And part of it is about sort of the strength of the sisterhood and how mm. women can support each other. And all of that is very powerful. And so it turns out to be a great decision for her that she's yeah. moved, even though it she didn't says, solve the original problem. Yeah, she's found new opportunities. And- yes, any direction that happens a lot (laughs) yes definitely I think yeah nothing ever turns out as we've planned it but we find the silver lining (laughs) somewhere exactly that's life right all right nice and so when does this book come out October 3rd. And so the first um, part of October, I will be in the States, uh, mostly in the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, Portland, Olympia, and Tacoma, doing a book tour there. And then I will come back here for a big launch party in the middle of October. Looking forward to that. So yeah, going back to San Miguel, then what would be your top recommendations for the city? Uh, well, um, if at all possible, come and visit during one of the incredible festivals here. Um, I think a couple of my favorites are Dia de Muertos, which is um, November 1st and 2nd. 
And all over the city are these incredible altars. People set them up both privately in their homes for people they've lost in their own families, but also um, artists do installations all over town. Businesses do public altars. Um, the city does public altars. So you can just do this tour of absolutely gorgeous altars. And meanwhile, many people um, are walking the streets dressed up as Katrinas. I don't know if you're familiar with a Katrina, no. but it's, um, it's when um, people paint their faces and dress as a very elegant skeleton. And oh, it was yes. started, you've probably the seen flowers. it. Flowers. Yes. yes. I didn't know the name, but yes, I see exactly. really elegant and really gorgeous. And it was first from a particular artist's engraving a hundred years ago, and it was sort of mocking the vanity of the rich. But over the years, it sort of morphed into a, sort of a Mexican cultural icon. And now it's very popular. A lot of people yes. wear this incredible makeup, these incredible costumes. Yes. And it just makes for an absolutely gorgeous scene. And if you've recently lost someone, it's very, very healing to go through this process, to have a way to grieve with these beautiful altars, to make an altar of your own right. is very powerful. So I highly recommend that. It seems that. like a, a very beautiful way to celebrate that. And it seems like there's a lot of joy that's actually brought into these festivals. Whereas yeah. I feel like in Europe, you know, celebrating that is always very gloomy. <laughs> it's dark and black. And... Absolutely. In the States, we don't do it very well, I don't think, in, in my yeah. opinion. But Mexico does it very well. It's still, of course, it's still, you know, incredibly sad to lose someone. Of course. But welcoming them back every year mm. and honoring them every year and celebrating with them every year is beautiful. Yeah. It keeps them close. There's also memory that's kept on through through the years. Yes. So if you can come for Dia de Muertos, that's a must. Um, another one to come for is the Alborada. And this one's even harder to explain. Um, <laughs> it's, the, it's a celebration of San Miguel's um, patron saint, St. Michael. And it's a celebration of his battle over the devil. So part of it is a weekend-long um, festival of indigenous dancing because religion here is very syncretic. The Catholicism was sort of you know, posed on top of the indigenous religions, and they melded, and both are going strong. So um, even though it's a Catholic celebration, a lot of it is incredible indigenous dancing. All the indigenous mm. groups from all around come into town. And for two days straight, you watch this just unbelievably athletic, unbelievably beautiful, um, stylish, wonderful dancing for two days. I love it. <laughs> and then the craziest part is at 4 a.m., you can either um, go to bed and get back up or most people just stay up all night. And at 4 a.m., everybody converges on the central plaza. And then for an hour, they reenact this battle between St. Michael and the devil. And the interesting part is that the people, the people of the town, represent St. Michael. And the devil is actually represented by the Catholic Church. <laughs> and the fireworks are shot off of the church, sort of over and into the crowd. And the first time we went to this, we noticed that even though the plaza was super crowded, everyone was packed together, there was a lot of space right up front. So why don't we go right up front? 
And as we're working our way to the front, some of the young guys are encouraging us. Yeah, yeah, you definitely want to come to the front. But Mm. this older woman grabbed my arm and was like, no, honey, you don't want to go to the front. Mm. So we stayed back a little bit and we quickly learned why we didn't want to go enjoy all that empty space because the fireworks are shot directly in. So for an hour, an hour, they just... It's, it sounds like a war is happening because all these pounding fireworks. And then there's a concert and it's this huge celebration. And it's really, really powerful and really unique to San Miguel. So I love that one. Um, and there's more. I could go on. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to hear about the incredible festivals here, there are so many. So look at the calendar and come during a festival if you can. San Miguel is always fascinating, but even more so when something's going on. All right. And so what would be a restaurant that you would recommend? Uh, My favorite, the one I always take guests to on their first night here is Atrio. It's a rooftop. Um, San Miguel has a big appreciation for rooftop restaurants because the climate here is practically perfect. Atrio is a rooftop and it's right next to the parroquia that people church I was telling you about. So you feel like you can reach out and touch the church from this restaurant. It's just a stunning view and the food is really good too. And what about your song? Uh, My song. If I had a voice, I would sing it for you, but I definitely do not. (laughs) It's called No Volvare. And it's a song um, actually about death, about not returning, about getting on that one that train with the one-way ticket and not coming back. But the reason I love it so much is because it's one of those classic songs that every Mexican knows. Um, I think okay. it was originally by Pedro Infante, and then Chavala Vargas sings it as well. Um, lots of Mexican singers have sung it. And I was recently at a Eugenio Leon concert, and it was mostly Mexicans. There weren't very many expats there. And at the very end of the concert, she comes back out on stage and all of her musicians, she has like 12 musicians out there with her playing all these different instruments. They all put down their instruments and they all walk and join her at the center of the stage and they start this acapella rendition. And then everyone in the audience stands up and starts singing it with her. Oh, wow. I got chills. It was so beautiful. Me um, and my Iranian friend were the only ones, I think, in the crowd that didn't know the lyrics. Everybody else <laughs> knew the lyrics. And my best friend looked at me, and she's, she's Mexican, and she said that this is the song that her dad once played at his funeral. Oh, wow. We were both crying over that. But <laughs> what, really, what really blew me away was that every single Mexican in the audience knew this song, yeah. and they sang it together so beautifully. And I think that's one of probably 20 songs that if you started singing, every Mexican in the room would know and sing Mm. along with you. And that's not something I had in American culture. I don't think beyond maybe the national anthem, which most of us don't even sing that very well, but we don't have a collection of common songs. Maybe Mm. originally, maybe if you're in the South, there's a country Western song that everybody knows, or maybe if you're in Boston, there's an Irish song that everybody knows, <laughs> but there's not there's not a whole collection of American songs that everyone knows, and so I was really impressed by that tradition and how beautifully they all sang it. It was it was really special to me. 
Wow. And it's a gorgeous song to begin with. There's yeah. a reason it's so popular. <laughs> well, it'll be linked, so go have a go have a listen thank for you. sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this was very very inspiring uh, to see your whole inv- uh, involvement in the community, how you move forward, and also the book sounds very interesting. So we'll have a we'll have to check it out for sure. Thank you so much, Pauline. It was wonderful to share with you. Guys, thank you for listening. As usual, if you liked it, please put a rating on Apple Podcast or Spotify, and you can uh, see all the news and updates on Instagram. <laughs>